but I'm not not saying they are related. You be the judge. But it seems like everybody can agree on these two things in our cultural moment right now. Like no matter who you talk to, everybody agrees on these two things. And I'm not saying they're related, but I'm not not saying they're related. The first of the two things is almost everybody agrees right now, 2021 America, in our current cultural moment, we live in one of the most pride-filled seasons in history. The most self-centered. I mean, everybody you talk to, yes, there's so much selfishness, so much self-centeredness. I mean, think about the, uh, 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 just a- a- everything culturally, how it sort of centers in on itself. Our thoughts go on social media. My videos go on YouTube. We use iTunes on iPhones, iPads. And if you're like, see, that's why I use Android. This sermon's not for me. You have missed my point, right? Group me, right? So everybody, we we struggle with pride. That's the first thing. And this other thing, I don't know anybody who disagrees with. You got all this pride, but everybody would agree. At the same time, we've got the most proud moment in cultural history. We are also at an apex of anxiety. Anxiety. People riddled with anxiety. Teenagers riddled with anxiety. Older folks riddled with anxiety. I read recently that the levels of anxiety in teenagers right now would have been, that would have put you in a psychiatric ward in the 50s. Okay? But that's just, that's just where we at. That now it's just an acceptable level of anxiety. So we've got all this pride. We've got all this anxiety. And so it is astonishing to me that in 60 A.D., Almost 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Peter writes his letter to his flock scattered throughout Asia Minor. 1 Peter chapter 5. Turn there. We're going to see this. 1 Peter chapter 5. He puts these two things side by side. And he certainly seems to suggest that there is a link. Pride and anxiety. So let's talk this morning about pride and anxiety. First Peter chapter 5. Pride and anxiety. And if you're here, you, I mean, usually most of the time, you know, if, if, if you're here and you go, boy, I really, whoo, it's a sermon on anxiety. Yes, I need that. I'm looking forward to that. This sermon is for you. And if your first thought is, sermon on pride, it's about time. All these other losers need to hear that. Then this sermon is absolutely for you. All right, here we go. Pride and anxiety. First Peter chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1. Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you. Right? So he's talking to pastors, ministers. Here we go. This is for us. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. I think that is a tender thing for Peter to say of all the verbs he could use to describe pastoring. He says, shepherd the flock. Why? Probably because of that unforgettable breakfast at the Lake of Galilee. When Peter was restored, Jesus told him three times. Remember his exact words? Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Take care of my flock. So he uses that imagery, shepherd. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Can you imagine a pastor? I gotta go pastor these people today, right? 
No. Not under compulsion. Willingly. And not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's a good uh, for all of us to remember, uh, ultimately, the Lord is my pastor, shepherd, right? The Lord is my shepherd. Everybody who gets the pastor has the great privilege of being an under-shepherd for the chief shepherd. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. All right? Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Obviously, a key theme here is humility. Did you catch that? He addresses three groups off the bat. First, the elders, be humble, right? Don't be domineering and bossy and, and lord your authority over others. No, instead, serve, lead by example, servant leadership. And then those that are younger, be subject to the elders. This is the mutual submission in the body of Christ that Peter has been talking about since chapter 1. And then if you decide, well, I'm not really an elder in the church, but I'm not, I'm not really a younger person either. Where do I fit in? And then just to catch everybody, he says in verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So fun fact that uh, clothe yourselves uh, literally can be translated tie on, tie on humility like an apron. You got to wonder if in Peter's mind he's thinking of a, of a very specific um, moment. Remember when uh, the Lord Jesus in John 13, Peter was there to see it. He tied on that servant's towel and he washed the disciples' feet. Remember there's even an interaction between him and Peter. And he's saying, just like Jesus tied on that servant's towel and washed the disciples' feet, tie on humility. Clothe yourself with humility. Why? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then verse 6, humble yourselves. Doesn't get much clearer. I'm trying to make the case that humility is a big deal here to 1 Peter chapter 5. So the, the Bible commands us, humble yourselves. So doesn't get much clearer. That's God's command. We got to do it as Christians. How? What is humility? And how are we to understand it? You know, it's one of those words, it's, it's actually not as simple as we think. This humility thing's easy to talk about it. And I think we know humility when we see it. But how do we humble ourselves? Do we ask God for humility? Did you know, nowhere in Scripture are we commanded to pray for humility. But over and over in the Bible, we're told, humble yourself. I don't think it's a sin. I don't think it's wrong to ask God for humility, but that's not the command. The command is humble yourself. So how do you do that? We've got to figure this out because it's easy to mess up. I mean, that, that's the irony of humbling yourself, right? That's the irony of humility is that it can turn back on itself, right? I mean, okay, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to humble myself. That's a great quality to have. It's humility. I've got to be humble. I've got to be humble. <laughs> I did it. I'm humble. Yeah, I'm awesome. Shoot. Right? You understand? I mean, right? I mean, can humility itself be something to brag about? I mean, if you ever meet somebody that's like, I'd say the thing that makes me better than everybody is probably my humility. Like, do you, <laughs> so how do you humble yourself? It's not easy to figure out. And on top of that, like, what if you're, like, legit good at something? What if you have some talent? What, 
What is a realistic assessment of yourself? Are you, so if, if you're really good at your job or you're, you're really talented, are you supposed to like n- not be talented so you don't get the big head? Like how does that work? What, um, so we have all these talented musicians. I tell you, what a blessing. Our church is filled with these talented musicians. And I imagine, you know, Brandon over here on the keyboard and he's so good at playing the keyboard. But what if he gets prideful about playing the keyboard? Is he supposed to like miss a note every now and then, you know, on purpose? <laughs> like, well, I don't want to, you know, right? Keep myself humble. Is a good athlete yeah, at Coleman High School, a baseball player for Coleman High School who could just crush a home run every time, should you occasionally strike out, you know. Okay, take it serious here. I guess not. Okay. <laughs> what if you get, come on, what if you, what, let's, let's, real talk. What if, you, what if you get dressed up? And I mean, you really take a lot of time and thought and energy. You get really dressed up. You get really, you know, made up just right. You go to a big party, you know, and, and you get there. And let's just say, I mean, you know, since we're talking about humility, let's talk real. Let's say you get to that party and somebody says to you, you look, you look good. You look sharp. You look, you look really put together. What do you say in that moment? Remember, you're a Christian. You're supposed to humble yourself. What do you say? I mean, do you sort of look down at your feet and kind of like, oh, it's probably just the lighting in here, you know. If we had good lighting, I'm hideous. I'm really, you know. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, you could tell the truth. Tell me more. In fact, let's leave this crowd so that we can unpack this, you know. Tell me more of what you're saying. Or you could go super spiritual and quote uh, scripture. Huh. Well, Proverbs 11:22 says, it's like a gold ring in a pig's snout. That's what a woman who looks good without virtue is. Which would end all future compliments. And, you know. What do you do? Uh, you see the problem. So humility, if we're going to humble ourselves, is, I think, living with a realistic assessment of yourself. And no, it's not missing notes on purpose if you're good at piano. And no, it's not striking out intentionally even though you're really good at baseball. It, humility is acknowledging realistically every day, I think, two things. Humility wakes up in the morning and says, these two things. I didn't make myself. I didn't save myself. I didn't make myself. Every day is a gift. I don't deserve it. I didn't ask to be here. I, I didn't make myself. Every, uh, we, we sang a hymn at the 8 a.m. service, My Jesus, I love thee, and I'll praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath. What a line. Every breath we take is on loan from a heavenly Father. Everybody right now take a deep breath. You like that? That's borrowed air from a good, good Father. He loves you. And he'll give you another breath. And he'll give you another. And he, you know, he, he, every heartbeat, right? I didn't make myself. And I didn't save myself. That's the reality. Now, some people think too highly of themselves. And that's an obvious form of pride. Some people think too lowly of themselves. Both of those are forms of pride. Let me explain. The obvious one is people who think too highly of themselves, right? They feel superior to others. And it's obnoxious. And it's obvious, right? Uh, but there are some symptoms to that. Uh, how do you know if you think too highly of yourself? One way to know you think too highly of yourself is, quite frankly, you don't listen. You don't listen. When people talk to you, you, you know, you can always tell humble people. I heard somebody, Gene Parr told me this a million years ago uh, when I was in college. He said, you can always tell humble people. And here's how. 
Uh, when you're with a humble person, when you leave that conversation with a humble person, you walk away feeling they cared more about what I had to say than what they had to tell me. It's the mark of humility. And you notice the opposite too, where you're talking to somebody, but you get the sense like, they're just waiting for my lips to stop moving so they can come in with what they want to tell me, right? It's a mark of humility. Another mark of pride, if you think too highly of yourself, you have a very hard time admitting you are wrong. These words are very hard for you to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Very difficult to admit when you're wrong. And if you're sitting there thinking, that's not me. Bro, (laughs) you're proving my point. If you hold a grudge, a mark of thinking too highly of yourself, if you're a person who holds a grudge, your person says, well, I don't forget. No, I hold a grudge. Why? Because implicit in holding a grudge says this. God, that person doesn't deserve to be on your team. What's the hidden implication? And I do. See? And one more. I, uh, I, I got this uh, from C.S. Lewis. I thought this was a tremendous insight. He points this out. One way you know you struggle with pride is from a mile away you can sniff it out in other people immediately. When you have pride radar that is set to maximum, right? Lewis's insight, and I think it's brilliant, he says because pride is essentially competitive in nature, because pride always competes, it's always in competition, if you are a person who can always spot pride in another person, it drives you crazy, you see that pride in others, careful, that's a mirror. That is a diagnostic that lets you know your pride radar is set to maximum. You can sniff it out in others because it's essentially competitive and you have it in your own heart. That's thinking too highly of ourselves. At times we're all guilty of this. And the Bible says, humble yourself. But What about people who think too lowly of themselves? Now that's tricky because usually we think of people who think too lowly of themselves as being really humble and, you know, they have a a kind of uh, esteem, uh, a low esteem. But that's a false humility. Let me explain what I mean. That can be tricky because a person who thinks too lowly of themselves might say something like this. I want you to see this is actually a perverse form of pride. They might say something like this. Oh, woe is me. God can't use me. God can't do anything with my life. God can't save me. God can't ransom me. I've sinned too far. I've fallen too far. God can't, can't use little old me, right? You know there's pride in that, ironically. Do you know where the pride is? Because think about what you're saying. God can't use me. He can use all these other people, but he can't use me. I'm special. See, I'm, I'm different. I've fallen beyond the reach of God. See? There's a pride buried in that. It's still an inward focusing on self. So we're we're, we're commanded to do it, right? Humble yourself. But if we think too highly of ourselves, we're not humbling ourselves. If we're thinking too lowly of ourselves, we're not doing it. So how are we going to humble ourselves? And the answer may be to take the focus off ourself altogether. I heard a wonderful definition of humility. And I cannot for the life of me remember where I read it. So we'll just say C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Probably. You ready? You can write this down. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Let me say it again. 
Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not saying, oh, I'm a bad piano player, when in fact you know you're, you're actually a, an accomplished piano player. It's not striking out on purpose. It, it, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is just thinking of yourself less. It's taking your eyes off yourself. Dr. Jerry Root calls this inward focus, our natural bent inward, a crookedness. He calls it the scoliosis of the soul. You know, scoliosis, right? Crooked, bent. And there's a natural bending inward. Take your focus off yourself. The way we humble ourselves is take the focus off ourselves. And in a Christian context, the most obvious way to talk about taking the focus off yourself is simply worship. Worship, it gives you a brand new perspective. Our eyes are off ourselves, they're on God, and they're on loving other people. It's new perspective. Let me ask you a question. Let's talk about realistic assessment of each other. Am I, Tom Richter, tall or short? The answer is I have no idea. I have no idea. Many of you would say tall, because as I walk around, they say, oh, you know, he's uh, taller than average. But I went once to an NBA game. (laughs) Now I'm short. What happened? I didn't change at all. Come with me, will you? Come with me in your mind to the Grand Canyon. Let's go. Let's drive down to Birmingham, Alabama, and let's get on an airplane. Let's uh, fly on that airplane, and as we take off there in Birmingham, just before we reach cruising altitude, look down, look down at Alabama. Look at the little bitty cars. Look at the little people. Oh, they're so little. And I, I am so vast as I rise above them in the plane. Look at how little, how insignificant, like ants. And me, I'm so big. And now let's land in Arizona. Let's get in our rental car. Let's make it a good one. Convertible. Why not? We're imagining. And let's drive right? And let's drive to the Grand Canyon. And there, as we stand before the canyon, vast and yawning, as we look down to see an eagle swim the canyon sea, our first thought is always, I am so small. The canyon is so vast, and I am so small. Wait a minute. How did that happen? How did you go from being so big and significant to so small and insignificant? The fact is, you didn't change. What changed? What changed is what you beheld. When you come together in corporate worship, you are getting a proper assessment of yourself because you are beholding the holy God of the universe and you're gathering with the saints and you realize, I'm part of a body. It's not all about me. And the soul's scoliosis straightens out to a proper perspective again. Worship is taking your eyes off yourself, and that is how you humble yourself. You worship. You take your eyes off yourself. You put them on the Lord, and you realize something. You realize something. You actually realize two things. Sunday after Sunday in corporate worship, I realize two things about myself. On the one hand, I realize, and I hate to admit this, but I realize I am more wicked than I ever thought. I realize the severity of my sin, and however, however sinful I think I am, there's all this self-delusion, and there's all this blind spots, and there's all this justification, and so however sinful I am, I'm actually worse. I get a reality about sin and about who I am. The Bible convicts me. It holds up a mirror, even this sermon right now on pride, right? It holds up. And at the same time, I realize something else. I realize however much I think I'm loved by God, it's more. I'm more wicked than I dared to imagine, but I am love to the stars. That's the gospel. The gospel's always more. We're more sinful than we wanted to admit, and we are more loved than we ever dreamed possible. Now, I want to close by 
given you two reasons why this humility thing is so important. Because what if? What, what if? What if you walk out of the sermon and you go, so what? I can either humble myself or not. If you're a Christian, do you realize what's at stake for you to get this right and for me to get this right? If this is in one ear and out the other, if you say, eh, no big deal, what is really at stake with this? So what's the big deal? Yeah, 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 it's a virtue, and Christians are supposed to be humble. I get it. Okay, we're supposed to do it. No, 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 make no mistake. What, what is at stake for you to get this sermon? What is at stake? Two things. Here's the first. The first comes from this verse right here. This is what's at stake. If you ignore this sermon, if you ignore this command of God, this is what's at stake. It says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That word oppose is the same word you would use for a general marshalling his armies and getting his armies all lined up to bring to bear against an opposing force. You do not want that in your life. You do not want the God of the angel armies uh, marshalling his forces against you. There are certain forces in life I never want to be opposed by. I, uh, I grew up and am to this day, sadly, a fan of the lousy, no-account Cincinnati Bengals. I can't stand them, but they're my team. I love them. I hate them. I was born in Cincinnati, so I didn't get to choose. I'd give anything if I could trade, but I can't. They're my team, and they're awful. I love them. <laughs> now, uh, for those of you who don't watch NFL football, for, uh, they're, they're the worst. And they always get beat up, particularly by these two teams, the Steelers and the Ravens, and like anyone else. But for years, I loved to watch NFL football, especially in the early 2000s, and um, there was a linebacker. Some of you will know him. He played for the Baltimore Ravens, and it's guy was scary how hard he would hit. Uh, his name was Ray Lewis. Ray Lewis was an all-pro linebacker, and I would just watch people just get obliterated by this guy. Now, th this is my analogy. Can you imagine if I go out here to Heritage Park to play a game of football, and I think it's flag football, and it's a couple of you young guys who say, no, Pastor Tom, we're actually going to play tackle football. Come on, it's Sunday afternoon, do it once. You know, all right, all right. And I go out there, and I'm ready. And I look across, and I don't know how, I don't know what he's doing here at Heritage Park, but I look across, and there's Ray Lewis. He's about to oppose me, and he's going to crack my back in half. And that's it. I'll be dead, okay? I don't want to be opposed by that force. But say you're not into football, and this analogy makes no sense. Say you're not into football. Say you're into collectibles. I tried to think of the opposite of football. <laughs> And you, have found, you are at an auction, and you have found that, that tchotchke that you have been searching for, and it will complete your collection, and you can't believe it, and it's here, and you've prepared for this day, and the bidding starts, and you put up your sign, and uh, it looks like, no, right? And going once, going twice, and suddenly someone else bids. Like, oh, okay, but you bid a little bit more, and they bid a little bit more, and you bid more, and they bid more, and suddenly you realize you're in a bidding war for that same item and you want it more than anything and you turn and look and he gives you a wink and you're opposed by Warren Buffett. 
You don't want to be opposed in an auction by Warren Buffett. Why? He has limitless funds, and you have limited funds. Ray Lewis and Warren Buffett, you don't want to be opposed by them. And listen, they are just men. This verse says, if you exalt yourself, if you're prideful, you will be opposed by the maker of Ray Lewis, by the maker of Warren Buffett, by the God of the universe. You don't want any part of that. Do you understand? You're going to be opposed. Now, if you think, let me, let me say one last thing about this opposing. If you think, right, it, it, when you say, you know what, I live by my own hand. I don't need God. I don't need church. I don't need this stuff. That catches God's ear. And he opposes. Now, lest you think God opposing you is angry or mean or spiteful or hurtful or hateful. No, 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 no. No, no, just the opposite. When you're on a track of pride, you're going straight down a slippery, icy slope. You can't stop. You are, you are bound for perdition. You are in a dangerous path. You're on a reckless path. It's going to lead to death, destruction. It's going to hurt everybody you love. Pride is a cancer, and it's eating you from the inside out. And your only hope as you're slipping down is some force will oppose you. So that opposition is an act of grace. If you want to see a biblical example of this, this afternoon, uh, read Numbers chapter 22 when Balaam the prophet was going to curse Israel. He was never supposed to do that, and he was going, and the angel of the Lord, it said, opposes him. It's him and his donkey. You should go home and read it. It's got a talking donkey. It's an incredible story. But he says, the angel says, I opposed you. Why? Because your path was a reckless one. The opposition of God, if you're on a prideful path, is a grace in its own way, isn't it? He loves you enough to oppose you. But, but not only that, but if you humble yourself, he gives grace to the humble. Prideful people can't receive his grace. There's no room. They can only receive his opposition. But here's the promise to the humble. Look at the next verse. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. He will lift you up. Imagine that force opposed to you now working for you. Imagine Ray Lewis coming to my team saying, hey, we're going to run a running play. I say we hand it to Ray. Yes, I agree. That would be a good plan. And watch Ray just crush everybody in his path. Imagine Warren Buffett says, hey, let's bid together. Why don't you use my bank account? You bid on what you want, and I'll foot the bill. Now all that force is marshaled for you. In, uh, in Exodus, God tells the Israelites, if you'll obey my voice and do what I speak, he says, I'll be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. The God of the angel armies will, all of heaven's forces will be marshaled. To whom? To the humble to those who depend on God. Every morning saying, I didn't make myself, I didn't save myself. So lead, good shepherd, this day as I humble myself before you. Well, that's the pride piece. I told you the sermon was on two things, pride, and now we come to this second thing. And some of you have been waiting for this. Look at verse seven, anxiety. Humble yourself, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. There's so much I want to say about this verse. And I imagine that this will not be the last time we preach on anxiety, not by a long shot. I think the Bible has a lot to say about anxiety, and I think it touches our cultural moment. So in the days ahead, uh, by God's grace, I, I, I want to unpack this. I want to do a whole sermon on anxiety, or maybe multiple sermons. But for now... Um, I'm, I'm just trying to show you that he connects humbling yourself with anxiety. 
casting. Casting means casting. It means to cast upon, to throw upon. It's the same verb they used when they threw their, um, their coats across the back of the donkey to make a little makeshift saddle for Jesus to ride in on. They cast it. Not, not you know, not throw it out there, but keep one hand on it to, to get rid of it. And I want to I point out the second word, casting all your anxieties on him. Some of you are so filled with anxiety right here in this room this morning. Let me just ask you, as tenderly as I know how, which of your anxieties does God not want you to cast on him this morning? All. So as best you can in your mind and in your heart and in prayer, maybe just breathe a prayer right now. Even as I'm preaching these words, just say to the Lord, give, give him the little stuff. Give him the little stuff. Then give him the medium stuff. Then give him the heavy stuff. Give him all your anxieties. He's able to bear them all. Why? Because he cares for you. Now, I want to be gentle here, and I want to tread lightly. Because many of you would say, Tom, I would give anything if I could cast him. I wish it were that simple for me. I'd give anything. It seems like when I cast my anxieties, it's like, a, it's like a boomerang. They just cast themselves right on back to me. I know we're t- treading in deep waters here, and I would say to you that, that there are those for whom I think counseling can be a great help. I mean, some, some amount of anxiety is normal for all of us, but there are levels which I think counseling can help. Seeking help cannot. Uh, seeking help can help. Here's what cannot help. Here's what will not help. Shame is not going to help you. So you need to hear me say this morning, he cares for you. He cares for you. If you're riddled with anxiety this morning and the only thing you can get your head around is that right there, then take that and meditate on it. He cares for me. He cares for me. He cares. It's truth. But unpack it. For those that can go a little further, unpack it with me. He cares for you. And if that's true, that means he cares for you, and 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 he cares for you. And this goes on and on until you realize, do the math. It means, as the little children's song says, he's got the whole world in his hands. Now, why is that so important? Again, I want to tread lightly here. I want to be gentle. But it seems to me that the reason Peter connects pride with cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you is something like this. If he cares for you, that means he rules the universe. But if you keep your anxieties, isn't there just a little bit of pride, spiritual pride in there that says, I know best how to run the universe. And if you have to run your own universe, if you are the Lord of the universe, if you're the king of the universe... No wonder you're scared all the time. No wonder you're filled with anxiety, right? I mean, if it's up to you that this has to go right and this has to go right and then this has to be here and this has to happen. It's not just, you know, I I talk to teenagers filled with anxiety, scary levels of anxiety. And it's, I have to make an A. Not just I want to make an A, I have to make an A. And I have to be uh, first string and I have to make first chair and I have to, why? Because those things are important for my resume and I might miss out on a good college. And if I I don't get the college, I won't get the major I want. If I don't get the major I want, I won't get the job I want. And I won't be able to put food on my table 15 years from now. When I was 16, I was not worried about putting food on my table, right? But I guarantee you there's 16 years olds in here that are going that's real that's real 
And it becomes a, if I'm ruling the universe, things, that's why you get so bent out of shape when, when things don't go well, because I'm in control here. If, however, someone else could rule the universe, even just for an hour, don't you think you'd breathe a little easier? So who's ruling the universe? Now, for every grown-up who's thinking, man, when I was 16, I wasn't worried about that at all, you know what I'm saying? Oh, now it's our turn. Uh, some of you are ruling the universe, and you know how? You're trying to rule the universe. You have a big screen TV, and you leave it on the news 24 hours a day in your home. You turn it off when you go to bed, but otherwise it's on. You know what's going on there, don't you? you you've, you've got high levels of anxiety. You've got, you've got news coming into your home, and you can do absolutely nothing about it. So you've brought in all the problems with none of the solutions. And you do this, right? And, and, and what happened, right, 100 years ago, wasn't a problem. So uh, what's the problem? Um, there'll be a news story, and they always have to be, you know, anxiety-inducing. That's how you sell advertising. And so it's a self-perpetuating cycle. We all know this. But, but you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a bear, let's say, uh, in a neighborhood in Trenton, New Jersey. Yes, a bear is terrorizing homes in, in Trenton, New Jersey. Now, 100 years ago, you didn't know about the bear in Trenton, New Jersey, and you were happy as a clam. Now, there's a 24-hour news cycle, and there's a helicopter above the bear. And now, there's a bear in Trenton, New Jersey, and it's suddenly your problem. You say, no, it's not. Yes, it is. You know why? Because you've brought that bear into your living room. And suddenly that bear in Trenton, New Jersey is giving you a little bit of, I don't think your subconscious is, naive, is, is nuanced enough to say, yeah, but that's off in Trenton, New Jersey. Because your subconscious goes, no, it's not. It's in our living room. Why? It's in 4K HD. The bear's like, I'm coming for coming next. Right? You don't know that. You're, right? So what did you do? You're trying to, it's basically trying to rule the universe. It, it's, it's a, it is a way of ruling the universe. Watch. I, so I said at the beginning, like, I'm not saying there's a connection. I'm totally saying there's a connection. Between pride and anxiety, you're bearing things you were not asked to bear. And I'm telling you, that is a form, a subtle form of pride. And the solution is not beat yourself up for anxiety. You're like, well, I had anxiety about stuff. Now I'm feeling anxiety about having anxiety. No! I'm saying the solution is humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Casting, it's, it, it's not humble yourself, period. Now, cast your anxieties. It's humble casting. It's, got, it's one thing to humble yourself is to cast your anxieties on him. I don't rule the universe. You do. And so I'm casting my anxieties on you. And I'm not going to be proud and, 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 and bear the things I'm not supposed to bear. If, if you were helping a young man move and... Uh, uh, moving out from a college dormitory into an apartment or something, and he's moving, and, uh, 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 and, and you come up on this, this young fella, and he's, he's struggling. He's got an entire chest of drawers himself. He's got the whole thing, you know, and he's obviously struggling. He's never going to be able to make it out the door. And so you walk up to him, you're like, hey, bro, if you'll tip that over and give me half that weight, we can probably get through this thing a little easier. Let's do this together. And he looks at you and says, back off! I got it myself! <clears throat> You would say, what's that man's problem? Pride. That young fella, he's full of pride. And it is his pride that is making him bear way too much burden, isn't it? And we see that a mile away in somebody else. And yet we can't see how in our own life, many times it's our pride. Bearing things that God has not asked us to bear. 
and refusing to cast our anxieties on God. And it will only lead to broken backs and sad Christians. A.W. Tozer has a delightful illustration of this verse. He says there was an old man riding his horse. Older illustration. Old man riding his horse. And the man is carrying on his shoulders a 300-pound bag of grain on his own shoulders while riding the horse. (laughs) And he's clearly languishing under the massive weight. And somebody comes up to him and tells him the most obvious thing in the world. Sir, why don't you put that bag of grain on the front of the horse's neck in, in front of you? The man replies, oh, I couldn't do that to her. She's, she's got enough just carrying me, and I wouldn't want her to have to carry this bag too. <laughs> that joke killed in the 50s. It was a... <laughs> you, you laugh because you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> Obviously, if the horse is carrying the guy who's carrying the 300-pound bag, the horse is already carrying. It's easy to laugh when you see that in somebody else, isn't it? But how many times have I been carried in the nail-scarred hand of my Lord Jesus and I'm sitting there carrying all my burdens and the Bible says, humble yourself, Tom. Humble yourself, church, and cast your anxiety. Why not offload that burden onto his hand? You say, well, how do I know he can handle it? Because he's already carrying you. So you might as well not be the one to carry the burden. If he's strong enough to carry you and the burden, let him carry your burden too. And let him carry you. How do I know? I know because the Bible says he cares for you. And I hope that you receive that as a word of great grace. That he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Brandon's going to come and help us in a time of response. And as he comes, I want you to ponder one last thing about this passage with me. Brandon will be setting up. Don't don't worry. Just just focus in here. Peter, of all people to to talk on this. I love to think about 1 Peter as written by Peter. Let's not forget this is Peter. Of all people to write to his people about pride, Peter knew something about the power of pride, didn't he? Didn't he? Wasn't it old Peter that boasted, though all these other losers fall away, if all these other disciples deny you, I'll stand true with you. You got a brother in me, Jesus. We'll go all the way to the end. I'll remain true. And from the height of that proud boast, he fell into the abyss of denial, riddled with anxiety. Ed Clowney asks a poignant question I had never thought of. He said, for the rest of Peter's life, from then on was there ever a morning when the rooster crowed that didn't remind Peter of what pride does in messing up a human life now you think about that they didn't have iPhones and alarm clocks and all that they had roosters so for the rest of his life every morning there wasn't a morning that went by that Peter wasn't aware of what pride had done in his life But that's not the only thing that happens every morning, is it? That's, that's the one thing the gospel teaches us. Every morning there's a reminder of this rooster. 
But the gospel teaches us something else, doesn't it? What else does the Bible say is brand new every morning? Lamentations chapter 3, 22 is a fire that you need to warm your soul at every single morning because the rooster's going to crow. Rooster's crowing every morning telling you, you know, you're filled with anxiety and you got worries and there's bears in Trenton, New Jersey. And the, and the world and the flesh and the devil, they have marshaled their forces, haven't they? And it just sounds like a big old rooster crowing. You're a failure, you're filled with anxiety, and you're never going to get better. Oh, but then you get alone with the Lord every morning. This is why your daily quiet time is so important. It's a time of humbling yourself because you get together with the Lord every single morning and you let him say this to you. Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Say it with me if you know it. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. That kind of love drowns out roosters crowing, I think, in Peter's life. And he realizes God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And however much pride and sin, there always seems to be just a little more grace. For anybody struggling with pride or anxiety, or all that's all of us at some point in time, hear this word of grace. His mercies are new every morning. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Let's pray. Humble us this morning, Lord, that we might cast our anxieties on you because you care for us. Take us, God, from a place of independence back to a place of dependence as we worship you this morning. Give us a proper perspective, not too highly thinking of ourselves, not too lowly thinking of ourselves, but taking our eyes off ourselves altogether, focusing on you, your goodness, your holiness, your vastness. And your mercies that are new every morning, truly great is your faithfulness. God, grant that to us. We don't want to be opposed by you. We want that grace that comes to the humble. We ask.